The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 13 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the bi-weekly podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Still wondering if Cyclops, Solar, and Nexus buy their visors from the same optometrist, I'm Adam. And wondering if my wife would prefer a variant hologram or a gatefold glow-in-the-dark version of our wedding photos, I'm Michael. I don't know if she would pick either of those, but if I had to pick, she would probably go with the gatefold because she likes big, sprawling pictures. There so you go. go. I, I figure, like, there's this wedding photo of this pin format <laughs> art inside a plastic cube. You know, it's the same basic gimmick. I agree. Well, here we are with our baker's dozen of episodes now. Number 13, and who knows? Is our luck going to run out this time around, Michael? Time will tell. <laughs> <laughs> But speaking of luck, let's see what prizes are hiding inside Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. So this time around in the magic words section, there is Chris Hess from Troy, Illinois writing in, and he has a question about an odor that we comics fans know all too well. Dear Wizard, I would like to know what makes old comics smell bad and how can I prevent and repair this problem in the future? Thanks. What have you been doing with your comics, Chris? Actually, I'm going to let Pat O'Neill answer this one. He can give you a much better answer than I. Okay, if I understand the question, Chris is pondering the source of the somewhat musty odor that some older comics have. Basically, though my high school science is a touch rusty, the odor is a result of the breakdown of the poor quality pulp paper most older comics are printed on. That breakdown is caused by exposure to air and or moisture. It's nearly impossible to avoid in any comic book more than 20 to 25 years old, simply because books that old probably were not kept in airtight, watertight situations early in their lives. If you have books newer than that, which have acquired the telltale odor, chances are their previous owners weren't overly careful of how they were kept. To be honest, I'd be one of those owners, Chris. My comic book collection is largely a source of research and entertainment for me, not investment. It would be a terrific pain in the neck for me to have to unseal a comic every time I needed to look at it for a piece of information. So, Michael, that smell. Ooh. Yeah, this is something I feel like everybody knows about that old comic smell. This has led us to introducing a new segment on the podcast for which Michael and I have pulled the oldest comics from our collection, which we will now sniff and describe the odor of for you, the listener, in what we're calling Smells Like Old Comics. So my in-laws were going through 
my wife's grandmother's basement a few years ago when, when they were selling her house. And they found a box of my mother-in-law's and her brother's comics from the 60s. Oh, wow. And it was like a bunch of Archie stuff and a bunch of like uh, old military comics from some of them I, I didn't keep because I just I wasn't interested and they were missing covers. With and a couple of them were really, really old. But the, the one in particular that I got out that was pretty cool and it's in very, very bad condition because it was in like a old musty cardboard box in a basement is Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number 115 from October of 1968 and on the cover it's a uh, it's Jimmy Olsen and Aquaman in the middle of a desert and Superman is threatening to kill them by not giving them any water what <laughs> so i i haven't read the issue i've had it kind of sitting down in my basement but on the cover it reads Superman stop this crazy test let us share that water or we'll die and superman replies to jimmy sorry jimmy the ground rules allow only one survivor you or aquaman <laughs> survival of the fittest it says it reminds me of the old uh, do you remember the super dickery listings have you ever seen that there's a whole website that was devoted to all those basically superman's pal jimmy olsen covers where superman is being a jerk supposedly and you never know why till you read the full issue this one's pretty bad. There's even there's a skull and crossbones on the cover. Wow! So it's really it's real well, dark. Michael, why don't you uh, pull that one up to the old schnoz and bring it all in? Let it wash over you and tell us what does that comic smell like? Well, my friend, it smells like old basement, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it it kind of has like that old newspaper kind of a smell, like the with, of the ink and like the the, the deteriorating uh, carbon paper. Okay. But it was still cool, and I, I think it's a cool comic, and I like it, so I'm, that's that's my answer. Sorry, it's not super exciting, guys. Surprisingly enough, mine is also a Superman book. This is Giant Superman Annual Number 7. It's a summer 1963 publication, and so this is a, a great annual that's just full of a lot of different stories and reprints and things like that. Superman's mystery power, where he's shooting rainbows out of his fingers, the origin of the Batman Superman team. When Superman became hmm. president, Superman's first wife, has he told Lois? Hmm. But yeah, so it's it's a really fun comic that I've read many, many times over the years. I got it from an old back issue bin for like a dollar twenty-five, you know, probably like ninety-three, ninety-four. And I've just been hanging on to it all these years. And I wanted it because it's so old. You could see that the spine was taped just to keep it together. The edges are all like it really is like tattered. And when you open to the front page, you can actually see the mold growing on it, water-stained. Did you say that this was, it also explained the first, the origin of, of Batman and Superman meeting and everything? Or yeah. Like the, I, I have to check, now that it, you say that, I think that's one of the books that came in this collection of basement goodies that my mother-in-law found for me. So I think I actually have that same book. I, I... This is the one that has like a silver Superman statue in the middle of it. So it looks like an Oscar, but it's Superman. But actually, this story is not the official World's Finest meeting. This is the origin from an issue of Superboy. So it's Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne, but Bruce 
Bruce Wayne shows up to town and he ends up putting on a different cowl and cape outfit. So it's kind of like misleading. On the cover, it shows the adult Batman and Superman, but it's actually the young Batman and Superman. All right, but let me, uh, I'm, I'm just going to flip these pages. I'm going to really try to take it all in. Like I say, I, I might be getting some black mold into my lungs here, but all for the sake <laughs> oh, of the good. podcast. I think your wife's a doctor. Yeah, yeah. You know what that smells like to me? It's an old grandma blanket. That's what that is. Grandma's had a blanket since 1975 in the bottom of her linen closet. All the cousins and everybody are there visiting and you get the last blanket. Yeah, that's what this smells like. (laughs) And that is the content you get on Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. We haven't run out of ideas by issue 13. No, we're keeping it fresh so to speak. <laughs> but speaking of the old stuff, Michael, why don't you send this into the Wave Riders Wayback Machine. Now we're going to be talking about TV shows that are premiering in the fall of 1992. This is an interesting list. And the first one is a show that I don't know if it was good, but I knew that everybody was watching it. I know I was a big fan of it. Is Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Yeah. I feel like Adam has a Hanging with Mr. Cooper story. I feel like (laughs) there's got to be something in there. Uh, well, I do have an interesting factoid about the show, because I loved Hanging with Mr. Cooper. I watched it all the time. I loved the In Vogue theme song. It was great. Yes. What was happening was Hanging with Mr. Cooper was premiering fall of 1992 when the last episode of Growing Pains, they had the series finale just a few months before in the last season. And so for the pilot episode of Hanging with Mr. Cooper, they shot it on the set of Growing Pains. And so before it, they have this weird little vignette where Alan Thicke walks into the house and Mark Curry who plays Mr. Cooper is there and he's like wait what are you doing here and they start talking and he's like well this is my house well not anymore and it's it's very strange it's this odd odd crossover that happened so once the the show got picked up then they actually you know got their own set and everything but originally the first episode takes place in the Seavers home from Growing Pains really I didn't know that that's pretty cool that makes me like the show even more now <laughs> I, I do remember years later mark curry did a like a stand-up special and he kept telling me he's like listen i'm not mr cooper my jokes are not kid-friendly all the time and i was like oh he's gonna be dirty i was like this is weird i didn't like it because i'm like i remember this being this like clean nice jokey type of show and i saw his stand-up comedy years later and i'm like whoa this is this is not the same guy <laughs> so he was going all bob saget on us that's how it goes yeah man. pretty much so the next show is currently trying to work on doing a revival is Mad About You. And I did not watch Mad About You at all. My parents were big NBC people. Like we love Cheers and Seinfeld and Frasier and all those things. We could not get into Mad About You. I like Paul Reiser. I like Helen Hunt a lot. But I just 
couldn't get into that show at all for some reason. Didn't well, it, it was kind you? of a weird mix of drama and comedy. I believe the end of the series, they get divorced. So it's really not a just like jokey type of show. It was trying to say like there's relationships and there's comedy in that. But, you know, they would deal with the husband and wife dynamic in a pretty interesting way. And my friend Sarah, her dad is the British neighbor. So his name is Paxton Whitehead. You didn't watch it very much, but for those people who were fans of it, they had this British couple that were their neighbors that would always come in. And so mm-hmm. whenever I'd see him, I'm like, hey, it's Paxton, all right. The only reason really I watched Mad About You was it was on must-see TV Thursdays, right? Mm-hmm. And so when my parents got divorced, Thursday night of every week was when I would go with my dad. And so mm-hmm. we'd get some Chinese food, I'd get my Kung Pao chicken, and I'd sit in front of the TV and watch the whole messy tv lineup so bad about you and friends and the single guy and whatever you know so i i definitely have fond single memories guy. <laughs> jonathan funny. silverman yeah from weekend at birdies wow that was a funny show too i like that show the next show is the heights and i remember the name of the show i don't remember what it was about i think it only lasted one season if i'm not mistaken yeah it was a show that just like melrose place it was a spin-off of beverly hills 90210 so originally right. the main character appeared on 90210 just to kind of introduce who he was and then it's like oh now he's in a band in la and they're trying to make it man i feel like if you took the musical rent and then turned it into you know an hour-long drama for prime time that's what the heights was and mm. i really didn't care for the show I, I liked it only because alex desert who was on the flash who played julio mm-hmm. and i was like oh i remember it's julio so i wanted to see it but then the show was just kind of drab except for they had a radio hit and you probably remember the song michael Oh my goodness, this song was everywhere that year, like everywhere. I don't know why, but it like really caught fire and it was all over the place on every radio station. So now the last television show premiering in fall of 1992 is an absolute juggernaut of a show in the 90s. Walker, Texas Ranger. (laughs) So... I was not a regular watcher of Walker, Texas Ranger, but I will admit that I did tune in quite a bit. And I was like, I liked watching it oftentimes more or less on the reruns, which I would catch later seasons on, you know, on WPIX in New York would have it on reruns or wherever. But I always thought it was so fascinating how he could do those roundhouse kicks in cowboy boots, in a cowboy hat. And the hat never fell off. Never once. <laughs> Every time. That was always amazing. And I always wanted to see a crossover of Walker, Texas Ranger 
and Nash Bridges. I watched Nash Bridges a lot more than I watched Walker, Texas Ranger. But when you said that you were wor- you worried about his hat falling off, I thought you were going to mention his action jeans. Because I thought, oh. why did his pants split or something? Because he actually yeah. had in Black Belt Magazine back in the day ads for action jeans, which were basically like, I assume had something to do with like there was some spandex woven into the material or whatever that, that made the denim stretchy so you could do all your moves. So what you're saying is Chuck Norris invented jeggings? That's what it sounds like. Apparently so. <laughs> yeah, I was a much bigger fan of the you know Chuck Norris Karate Commandos, that cartoon from the 80s. And I heard all about Chuck Norris mainly because my elementary school karate instructor was actually trained by Chuck Norris. And so he would give away you know autographed photos and stuff uh, if you were really good in class, which I never was. So <laughs> Chuck Norris to me was just a reminder of, of how much of a failure I was at karate. <laughs> there was a movie that came out around the time that Chuck Norris's Walker Texas Name Ranger premiered that was like a family kind of movie where he was sort of like a sidekicks with jonathan brandis yeah right (laughs) and so part of the reason why i think i tuned in to walker texas ranger more than i probably would have was because i was obsessed with the movie sidekicks i loved that movie so much and i was like oh it's it's chuck norris doing martial arts again but it's on tv every week and i was hoping like the kid was going to be on the show or whatever be like his sidekick or joe piscopo did joe piscopo ever appear on walker texas ranger he was the bad guy in that movie he was the bad guy oh he was (laughs) he was bad at something i'll tell you I always thought Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman came out around the same time. It did, yeah. I I didn't list it, but you're right, because that was on CBS alongside Walker, Texas Ranger. Right, that's what I thought. Yeah, they were like... They were doing a very big Western theme. I'll admit, I probably watched Dr. Quinn more than, than <laughs> well, Walker. Well, that was like the family show, right? Yeah. yeah. It was the family show. And I loved the guy that could throw the tomahawk. That was pretty cool. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. His long hair. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And me having no hair to this day still makes me jealous of having people with long hair. So there you go. <laughs> so I'm kind of glad we did this as opposed to talking about movies this week and talking about TV shows because... Back in the 90s, in you know, particular, when there wasn't internet, there wasn't YouTube, there wasn't all these other places to consume content, when TV shows premiered on your network television, everybody tuned in. Everybody tuned in on Thursday night or TGIF or whatever it was. It's cool to rehash those things and talk about those shows. So that's cool. That was fun. So now we're going to dive into some music. And this is a fascinating month for music. We're going to start off with... Uh, Nine Inch Nails Broken on the 22nd of September. I don't... Which album is this? Well, see, this is the weird thing about this album is it it was not the one that had all the major hits... Right. Uh, but it was super controversial because they made all these music videos and other things that were like very dark. They were, they looked like snuff films, like people were being mm-hmm. killed on screen. And so they would only be shown in edited form or not at all. And it was just like, that was like the big mystery, like building the aura of Trent Reznor. Like he's a psychopath, you know, but I don't know that there were too many huge hits that came out of this particular album. None that I recognized, at least when I went down the track listing. None that I could think of either. So the next album or song, because it really was a one-hit wonder, this was another song that was incredibly popular and had a major impact on that particular year in music is 
the song No Rain by Blind Melon. And I, to this day, still love that song. And it's one of those things where it's such a tragic thing where the, the lead singer, it had such potential to be such an incredible band if that was their kickoff song, you know? Yeah, he was kind of like the hippy-dippy version of Ozzy Osbourne, just that very nasally, like, whiny style of singing. But at the same time, it was just such a great groove. And, of course, the the iconography of that girl in the bee costume at the Mm -hmm. beginning doing the tap dance routine on the music video. And, yeah, I mean, this is, like, top five 90s songs for me like this is instant nostalgia whenever i hear no rain i actually have it like on tapes that i recorded off the radio back in the day my audio cassettes that's what you used to do back in the day before napster then before just being able to stream it on youtube and not even buy an album absolutely Ooh, ooh, it's playing on the radio you'd run over to your boom box folks and you'd hit record and play at the same time and it would (laughs) Hope you'd catch it and not catch the, you know, the radio jockey talking before or after it. That was the move. The next one is The Prodigy Experience on September 28th. Now, is this Prodigy's first album? Yes. So this is early days of Prodigy. Most people probably don't know the songs off this album. But the reason I included it here is because especially the first two are my comic book soundtrack music. You've mentioned that, yeah. Also, our listeners have heard one of the tracks from this album. They just didn't know it because our theme song for the Asriel's action figure Fury segment is actually off the Prodigy experience. So just a little tidbit there for you all so now the last album that came out in september on september 29th is stone temple pilots core featuring songs sex type thing and plush and i loved plush i loved that song i I didn't listen to this whole album a lot but i did like that song a lot yeah see like i'm a bigger fan of their next album yeah like vaseline like that's probably another top five 90s hit for me but sex type thing was interesting to me because i was like i don't know that song and then i went and listened to it and i was like I was like, whoa, I know that song. I had no yeah. idea that was Stone Temple Pilots. Because it's like, this one sounds like Alice in Chains or something. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's heavy and he's growling. and just like the subject matter of the song. I mainly know that, it turns out, from a Weird Al polka medley. Hey! So it's like, I know a totally different presentation of that song. (laughs) All roads lead back to Weird Al or Kiss. (laughs) (laughs) In my mind, absolutely. (laughs) Well, that was fun. That was a good trip down memory lane for that. So let's close up the Wave Riders Wayback Machine and we'll dive into our 
Table of contents, Adam. What do you got for us? Oh, well, by the way, if I start getting a little loopy, I can still taste that comic book I inhaled. Oh, so I'm great. pretty sure my lungs are filled with some type of black mold. So what we do for the show. <laughs> in, in about a half an hour, if I'm talking to myself, we'll all know why, folks. <laughs> this is September 1992, and emblazoned on the cover, in addition to our subject, who we'll get to in just a second, is Flash, 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 Flash. But they are talking about wizard being the 1991 best new publisher of the year three exclamation points what garib says here inside is i would especially like to thank diamond comic distributors for choosing us based on their retailers for the new publisher of the year award this means a lot to us it gives us the will to continue just knowing how much you're all there pulling for us so yeah they're a big deal but on the cover here is Ghost Rider making his second appearance in just one year. So this is issue 13 and I mean it is crazy that they're already putting it back on and we talked about this initially. We're like we didn't remember Ghost Rider being that popular, right? No, not at all. Yeah, but apparently we were just not hanging out with the cool people collecting comics. This cover is actually painted. There's like one section that's literally just a huge skull, but then you got the full body Ghost Rider whipping his chain and he's pointing at the reader like guilty but this was painted by an artist named nelson and he actually has an interview in this issue where it's revealed that he had just recently graduated from the school of visual arts in manhattan where comic book legend gene colon or colon who knows was his instructor now he did a lot of painted covers they mentioned ghost rider 18 is another one which is very similar this is like a sequel to the Ghost Rider 18 cover. And then the Robocop 3 miniseries at Dark Horse, he painted all those covers. But interestingly enough, some of you out there, I'm sure you remember this, he did the interior art for the Charleston Chew giveaway comic. It had a six-page Silver Surfer story in it, I believe in addition to a Spider-Man and a Wolverine story. But this Charleston Chew giveaway comic, that was a big ad in Marvel Comics in the 90s. Do you remember that one, Michael? I do remember the ad, and I do remember that I was like, I don't like Charleston Chew enough to have to eat so many to get a comic out of it or whatever the gimmick was for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was the thing. There were a lot of those where it's just like the food was not appealing. You know, it's like combos. The combo man comes around later on. I'll eat some combos. But like that and uh, what was it? Crunch and Munch? I just wasn't interested. Although a lot of our listeners have told us that they did actually order those Crunch and Munch trading cards that were being offered. But he also, I believe, because then when i saw the name nelson i was like i know that name he did several painted images for different marvel trading card sets going forward also because that became a very big deal in the trading cards getting into a little bit more about ghost rider probably the reason he made his appearance on the cover here is patrick daniel o'neill is interviewing howard mackey who had been writing ghost rider up to this point as well as his serialized stories in marvel comics presents but he had recently dropped the marvel comics presents to write the new ghost rider johnny blaze team-up book which is spirits of vengeance so you had dan catch the current ghost rider and then johnny blaze the original in human form but interestingly enough howard says you know chris claremont didn't want the x-men books to be the same story continuing in two titles you might recall from episode number one they didn't listen really ultimately <laughs> that's what x-men comics became but mackie says that these books will actually be separate
different storylines in the same universe. And for those who don't know, Johnny Blazedow has a shotgun that shoots hellfire, and he's been running a carnival all these years. <laughs> he has a family, he has all these carnies that look up to him, but then he decides to take off on this mission with Ghost Rider. Also, Mackie says he doesn't believe in the writer versus artist debate, because his whole concept is comics creation is a collaboration. So one is not more important than the other. They have to be working in tandem. They have to be on the same page, or else the book is just not going to continue. And Ghost Rider comics have been very popular up to this point, so he had a good methodology there. But he mentions also that he has recently worked with Adam and Andy Kubert on his books, and he mentions, quote, you can't find a better pair of artists. They're about to become a very big deal after the exodus of all the image founders, uh, Adam and Andy Kubert. You, you hear a lot more from them and see a lot more from them in all sorts of books. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Now, randomly, a video game review section pops up again here, Michael. Do you remember back in the day we were getting these GamePro articles being published just to fill space, I think, in the early days? And for some reason, they're going back to it. This one's called 16-Bit Power, but it doesn't cover, like, comics-based games. It's talking about Super Castlevania for the Super Nintendo and Kid Chameleon for Sega Genesis. So I don't know why they felt like they needed to be all things, you know, all pop culture. But understandably, video games were a big deal. What was your system in 92, Michael? What were you playing? So... I started off with an Atari. Then, you know, everybody had the regular Nintendo. And then I had the original Game Boy. But I want to say in 92, I think I was primarily using Sega Genesis. Okay. Genesis was my favorite for a long time. I loved playing NBA Jam and Mortal Kombat and stuff like that. And I was a big Genesis guy. I didn't have a Super Nintendo or anything like that, but I was a big Genesis guy. What about you? Well, I was definitely a Nintendo kid. Like, everybody that had... Sega systems, they were always like the cool people to me. Like, I had a babysitter, her brother had the Sega Master System, you know, during the Nintendo days, and then all my buddies had Sega Genesis, but I only had Super Nintendo and Nintendo. I never got into the Sega side unless I was visiting somebody else's house, and I always agreed much cooler, much edgier. All my friends used to say that I didn't have a lot of games, but all the games that I picked were like really popular. And everybody loved coming over to play on my Sega Genesis because I had the cool games. Because there were so many games that were junk back then, but they're like, oh... Mike's got the cool ones. Let's go over to his house. We'll play, you know, NBA Jam. Yeah. You, know, I, I, you had good taste. I had all the hockey games and football games. And I used to make, like, custom-created players, and that was always fun. We always had our own players. And Oh, yeah. Also, they're including The Wizard's Realm, covering tabletop role-playing games, but it, it's only talking about Dungeons & Dragons. This is, again, like, there were plenty of comic book-related RPGs, which we actually covered in our bonus episode, covering the issue that came out concurrently with this, which was the Comic-Con special for 1992. So I think they were kind of doubling up on content, but for some reason they decided to just put the basic one in here. But in the Wizard's News section, it mentions that Topps is getting out of just cards. They're going to give you comic books, and it's going to be an adaptation of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula with a packaged subset of trading cards in each issue that they're going to tie into their full trading card series. Now, this is a movie I've never seen. I know Gary Oldman with the big hair, but mostly just from Mr. Burns pretending to be Dracula on The Simpsons <laughs> in that one Halloween episode. 
I have seen it a couple of times. It's a very good movie overall, but it is incredibly long. It's like almost four hours long. Wow. Four hours of Keanu Reeves? Yikes. But but he's fantastic in it. Really? um, Yeah, he's really, really good. I think Winona Ryder is the the girl in it. Mm -hmm. The problem I have with that movie is Gary Oldman was so scary in it that like I had to watch it in small doses because it's so dark and it's so frightening that I was like, I, I got to take a break. I was I was always scared of it. I, I remember it being a big phenomenon. Uh, it feels kind of weird that they're going to make that adaptation their launch title. But hey, if it's big in the zeitgeist, you, you go with what people know. But I don't remember those cards at all that they even took off. I can't even imagine. Well, I, I just don't see this as a series of cards or comics that would appeal to kids. So maybe they were going after like the college market or something like that. Maybe. But something that probably will appeal to the kids, Wizard News reports that Will Sportacio is finally coming to Image with Wetworks in October. So, you know, he had kind of the will, he won't, he, everybody's like, oh no, if Wills is coming, you know, he, with his interview a few issues back, he's like, yeah, I'll probably join up with those guys. And he makes it official with this Wetworks, this team of gold-plated super soldiers uh, being introduced. Initially, they're saying through backup stories that are going to be printed in issues two and three of wildcats and then issue number one in october now in the collecting comics in the 90s they actually have a guest columnist named benjamin biggs who he is discussing the value of polybagged versus unpolybagged comics now we, we've had the discussion in the past where there was a, a concern where pat mccallum was saying hey you know you don't get him to sign the bag you know you got to get him to sign the book that's inside the bag that's what's valuable that's what the creator put together they're saying you know wizard will list a different version if you have the comic loose or in the bag and tell you what the price is based on that but he is claiming that polybagging comics actually is going to yellow the pages uh, and the covers of the books within so technically the unbagged book should be worth more because the book will be in better condition because it's not being damaged by the polybag and he's demanding that marvel instead start using polypropylene bags and acid-free backer boards so he's getting all technical on them but i decided to test this theory Okay, because I have in front of me right here the polybagged edition of X-Force number one. Okay, so, you know, it's got the full bag. It's still sealed. It's got the cards inside. I see Shatterstar. Now, the only damage I am seeing at all is at the top of it, the red border that says issue number one, free trading cards enclosed. You can see a little bit of that has chipped away inside the bag. But like the book itself, I guess it's true. The corner box, I am seeing, you know, where it says $1.50, one August. It is a little bit more yellow, but strangely enough, right next to it, the Comics Code Authority box is bright white, like blazingly white. So I I have a hard time understanding, because even in the Marvel Comics logo, the comics that would be over the red Marvel M, it actually is a little bit more yellow. So that's really strange to me, because a certain portion of the book would be more yellowed than the other, but on the back, like the barcode's still white and everything else. So I'm wondering what that factor is, because overall, all it looks to be in great condition but he's right 
there is a little bit of damage to this book. But I mean, how many years are we talking about? About 30 years now? 25 years? Yeah, it's been a while. So, but still, I, I think that's pretty impressive. And of course, it always comes down to where and how you're storing your books. Because like, for example, I live in Arizona. It's very dry here. We're not going to get moldy books. We're not going to have that problem. But I know that if you're you know, down south somewhere, if you're back east, I mean, you have a little bit more humidity out that way. And so you got to be a little bit more careful with the way you're storing everything. You know what? Us folks back east, we got that humidity up in here. <laughs> I'm in the desert. Like... I don't know anything about humidity. Yeah, I actually, so in my basement where I have my 16 boxes of comics down there, we have a humidifier down there as well as those damp rid bags all over the place. Oh, to, wow. To, yeah, partially because I have my server down there, but also a large part of it because of my comics, even though they are, you know, bagged and, and boarded with all the right stuff, but you never know. Yeah, we'd like to hear from you guys listening out there. Where is your biggest concern in how you store your comics? Is it that you have enough space? Is it that there might be some dampness involved? Are you concerned with uh, odor? But let us know about that, guys. So when we originally conceived this show, I had a whole idea for a segment called Damage Control. And Damage Control was going to be about all the stuff that is just not politically correct, the comments and otherwise that have not aged well in Wizard. This may still come to fruition, but there is just so much that pops up. Every issue. That almost has to be part of our half episodes, I feel like. Just reading the Babe of the Month. (laughs) Yikes. To read it with 2020 eyes is like cringeworthy. I'm like, how? I I actually started following a couple of the creators of Wizard on Instagram, and I want to see if I can try to convince them, maybe one of them, to be on our show one time and just say, hey, I'm going to read you some excerpts. What do you think about them today? I really want to see (laughs) Face us. Face your public. Yeah, and we should mention on that note, we were lucky enough to have an interaction with Garib Seamus, the big cheese himself. There is a possibility in the future. Who knows? We have some goings-on behind the scenes we're hoping that we just might connect with him down the line if we could pull that off that'd be pretty awesome speaking of some of the stuff that does not age well so in the brat pack for those of you who recall this was a section where they would interview younger kids who are the heart of the comics reading world they say and want to find out what they are reading what their opinions are and so most of this particular interview is asking who are your favorite characters right and so it's going anywhere from like oh uh, i like Sting from Harbinger, Iceman, The Flash, oh, because his powers are sort of realistic, or The Punisher, or whoever else. So, this Punisher conversation leads into the interviewer saying, Adam, not me, before we started this month's Brat Pack talk, you were telling me about a problem you had in study hall with a bully. If you could relive that moment, having the abilities of, say, Punisher or Superman to handle the situation in their respective styles, who would you choose? To which Adam responds, Punisher, no doubt. Mike? What do you think? Mike says, Superman. Wizard, any particular reason? Absolutely. I'd humiliate him. I'd give him a poke in the head, knock him across the room, and have the undying admiration of every girl in school. Then Wizard's like, Phil? Punisher, definitely. Why? I'd just take care of him. Interesting responses. Should raise a couple of eyebrows. Uh, yeah, you might say that. Yikes. Phil, where are you now? Yeah. (laughs) Oh. 
I know. This is just, like, encouraging these revenge fantasies. I mean, obviously, back in the day, in early comics, you had the whole thing about the kid getting sand kicked in his face at the beach, and then he bulks up and comes back and takes care of the bully, even in Superman 2, right? When he depowers himself, and then he goes back and gets revenge. It's funny, though. So, I I don't know. I'm, I'm looking at this from our perspective now as being adults and being parents and stuff like that, and... And, you know, Wizard is saying, oh, you know, who would you want to be? And they're saying, I want to be the Punisher. And back then it wasn't a thing. Like, people wouldn't think about it. But nowadays you're like, I got to be careful how I say this because a kid could misinterpret this and say, oh, Wizard had told me to be the Punisher. And, you know. It- yeah, but I mean, it was just part of the culture in the yeah. 80s and early totally. 90s. That's who we were looking up to, right? You know, you think of every Schwarzenegger film, every Stallone film, most Bruce Willis films at the time, right? Just a lot of gunplay, as many bullets as you could get out of that gun the better and how do you take care of bad guys you blow them away there is no rehabilitation there's no making a truce you just gotta take care of them so it makes sense that the punisher in this case could be seen as a role model because every tv spot we're seeing for the next action film is teaching us that that was just what we grew up with and it was only you know after certain incidents in the 90s just a few years later where you're like wow okay so i mean overall most people are sane and could just see these things as entertainment but yeah you you don't want to blur that line of reality as to what's okay and what's not okay and obviously phil here did not quite have the right perspective on how you deal with a bully even this kid mike who says you know absolutely i'd humiliate him uh, i don't know but it just it's just funny to see how those things translate today in 92 i'd be like yeah i'd want to be superman and show him like i could pick him up by his belt buckle and raise him over head and say hey i'm not afraid of you or whatever it might have been but nowadays just you can't think like that anymore it's a very different world yeah uh, yeah, I mean, I, I obviously had my share of bullies as well. And uh, yeah, it's just one of those things that's uh, sometimes being punched down makes you want to punch out <laughs> some of yeah. the guys. But Michael, you know, I think we're going to jump into some happier times because we're about to jump into Heroes in Motion. There's an insane amount of information on the Hollywood Heroes section. Andy Mangles is uploading a ton of info on what comics and sci-fi shows are premiering or being canceled in the fall of 1992. The ABC network is launching the COW, or Cowboys, of Moo Mesa. I never heard of that show at all. Which is a Wild West action show with literal cowboys which are being handled by the same company, Surge Licensing, that brought the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to TV and toy stores. I don't remember this show. Do you remember Cowboys? I actually was a big fan of this show. I'm not surprised. Yeah, this is ABC Saturday mornings, and they actually uh, had a video game at the arcade. 
which was really cool. The video game, you were shooting like stars out of your gun. And yeah, they were, they had the Colorado kid. They were little cow people in this universe. And the theme song was really cool. If nothing else, go look up the theme song on YouTube. It's fantastic. I mean, they had action figures. They really thought this was going to be the next TMNT. And it just, yeah, like you said, you didn't even hear about it. So it no. obviously didn't connect. It didn't seem like something I would watch at this. I mean, I was big into X-Men, Spider-Man, and Batman the Animated Series. This show is not even on my radar that I could even think of. So the next thing is ABC is airing the Human Torch Adventures based on a DC comic starring Rick Springfield, who takes on the identity of his clients to protect them. But they gave it a terrible time slot at 10 p.m. on Saturday nights, and the show didn't even make a full season and was canceled. So first of all, I did not know that this was a show in the 90s because I remember the the reboot of The Human Target that came out a couple of years ago that lasted one season. And I liked that show a lot. I thought it was a pretty cool idea. And that it was also based off a DC comic was also pretty neat. But who was watching TV on Saturday nights at 10 o'clock? Even I in know. The 90s? That's, I mean, I, I think they, they thought maybe it could compete or lead into if people are going to be watching Saturday Night Live. So you're up, need something to watch before that starts at 11, 1130. Going to watch The Human Target. But yeah, this is Rick Springfield is interesting because he had a lot of these TV show attempts that didn't quite come together. And I know in particular, my wife's co-worker, a friend of hers named Jenny, is a huge Rick Springfield fan. Like, he has all these cruises and every concert he has, she just takes time off work and she goes to see her Rick. You know, she's got pictures of her with him all over her apartment. You know, she's a single lady and uh, Rick is the, is the dream. And so he knows her, you know. And so, yeah, you can always have a, a nice conversation with her but she wants to talk about the deep cuts no jesse's girl <laughs> that's pretty funny you, you always have a story my friend the world is an interesting place you know it sure is okay cbs canceled the animated series fish police you heard that right i said <laughs> fish police i again never heard of this show uh, which was apparently based on a Marvel comic. Find that hard to believe. Yeah, well, it's it's so weird. I I had never heard of Fish Police except in passing because this was something that came in the wake of The Simpsons, and so all these different networks are trying. Uh, there was one called Capital Critters. Then there was Fish Police. There were these animated like adult primetime sitcoms, and yeah, this is just another one that did not make it. They actually even in this issue just there's three episodes they're not even gonna air. They describe the plots of those episodes for you, so. They are also reportedly they are also reportedly developing an American Gladiators cartoon which could lead to a feature film. I do remember hearing about this American Gladiators like animated show. I loved American Gladiators. As a kid, I was like, I want to be on there someday. Now I'm in my late 30s with my true dad bod, and I'm like, I could never be on American Gladiators. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I love that show, too. The action figures and the trading cards. And when they were on Family Matters, remember Family Matters? Urkel and Carl went on American Gladiators. Yes, and I, I wanted to I wanted to do the Joust, too, so bad. I wanted to yeah, do that. I, I have the NES game the nintendo game's pretty fun really? yeah pretty but it's cool. just but it, i can't believe that it didn't get a cartoon and things like pro stars came along like they were turning these it's not really it's sort of sports based but whatever you want to call it you know into into animated series it seems like it would have been ripe for it it must just mm -hmm. not have ever gotten traction i guess and you mentioned pro stars i loved that show so it's also mentioned 
that Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, who produced the Flash TV series, were at one point working on both a Green Arrow TV series and a Sandman movie based on Neil Gaiman's Vertigo series. But neither of those ever moved forward, unfortunately. I think it'd be interesting if if Green Arrow had existed in the 90s like The Flash, and then that was another CW. They brought back the actor from that series to be on Arrow. I could have seen that in the 90s. I I feel like that was a a good time for that kind of a show, especially when you have shows like Mantis and other superhero-based live-action shows. So I, I never fully read Sandman, and I couldn't get into it, but it's one of those books that I just can't see it translating into movies, even to this day. Like, it's very niche in the sense that, like, what people would really get or understand, because it's a very deep story, and there's so much to it. I I just can't... It it couldn't be one movie. It had to be, like, Harry Potter, where it's, like, nine films to, to... make it actually make sense, you know? Yeah, something like that. I know, it's always reportedly in development, just never comes together. Yeah. Most interestingly from CBS is news about Bob Newhart was getting a new sitcom called Bob, where he is a comic book artist whose famous character, Mad Dog, is getting grim and gritty 90s reboot forced upon him. Was this a, was this a series? I, I remember the Bob Newhart show, but... The- yeah, he, he had a lot of different sitcoms, like, throughout the 70s and the 80s, and this is one, I if I had known about this, I would have tuned in, because, like, oh, it's talking about the comic book industry, it's set with a comic book artist? But yeah, I never heard about this show, but also, it's like, it's an old dude, you know what I'm saying? Like, kids who were buying comics don't want to watch this, this show that's, like, basically about an old guy who makes comics, that's not right. cool. Yeah, Betty White was on this show. <laughs> <laughs> So weird. Okay. All right. Anyway, NBC is not working on anything comic book related, but does have a project called Knight Rider 2010 without David Hasselhoff, where Kit is the car with a female AI projected as a hologram to the driver who battled cyberpunk enemies. (laughs) Yeah. See, I remember there was Knight Rider 2000 was a TV movie. I remember that, but I don't remember this ever happening. So basically, in that movie, Michael Knight comes back and and Kit's kind of destroyed, and he integrates Kit's brain into this other car. And at the end of the TV movie, Michael Knight passes the car onto this girl who's somehow psychically linked to her. And I was like, this is going to be a TV show. This is going to be fantastic. And it never happened again. It was one of those things like your Generation X. It was like mm-hmm. a made-for-TV movie that was primed to be the pilot and then just never became anything. So as we all know, in the fall of 92, Fox is bringing Batman the Animated Series to the network with Mark Hamill officially announced as the voice of the Joker, as well as the highly anticipated X-Men animated series as well. Which I always thought was very strange that Fox had both DC and Marvel content. Yeah. Wasn't that strange? Yeah. Because, like, ultimately, like, the WB comes around, and then this, you know, like, they then they took all their properties and put their animated stuff over there. But, yeah, it is strange that everything just coexisted. Everything comic book related was on Fox in the yeah. early 90s. So, Zen, the intergalactic ninja, was reportedly being developed in, into a cartoon series by Surge Licensing. 
which also never happened. So another Ninja Turtles they thought they had on their hands. No dice. Seriously. It's also announced that the Cartoon Network will launch October 1st of 92 and would air old Hanna-Barbera cartoons 24-7 or 24 hours a day at the time. Because 24-7 wasn't a term back then. <laughs> there is hope that the original Fantastic Four cartoon and the very strange Fred and Barney Meet the Thing series will also end up in the rotation. So I remember when Cartoon Network dropped because at that time they had announced Cartoon Network. I think Comedy Central came out at that time, BET, and there was one other network that that dropped at, at the same day in 92. And we didn't get those channels for a couple of years after. And my parents were like, we're not paying for a premium channel so you can get a Cartoon Network. You got Cartoons on Saturday morning, kid. You don't need any more. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually never got Cartoon Network. That was never part of our cable package growing up. So I had like E! Entertainment Television. I watched a lot of that, but I did not watch Cartoon <laughs> Network. <laughs> I love Talk Soup on the E! Channel. Everybody remember Talk Soup? Who doesn't? Well, yeah, we didn't have Cartoon Network for a long time. And my grandparents had Cartoon Network. So whenever that would come up, I was like, oh, I'm going to go over to Grandma's house. I can watch Johnny Quest. So that was about all the times I ever really saw Cartoon Network growing up. So pretty much that's all the highlights I have from that article, which is kind of interesting. It's a, a lot of content was being developed at this time. Some that stuck, some that never saw the light of day. But that's our Heroes in Motion, guys. Now we're going to get ready to flip through Gambit's deck of cards. I feel like we haven't talked about trading cards in a while in depth, but this one actually has a lot to say because there is an interview with another painter, yes, Joe Jusco, who has been a longtime Marvel cover artist. He did a lot of painted covers in like the late 70s and early 80s for Hulk and Conan magazines. So he actually talks about how he did a so many Conan covers, and that's what he was known for. But he was actually a bodybuilder. The interviewer remarks like, wow, when I met you at a, a comic convention a while back, I saw how buff you were, and I didn't realize. He's like, yeah, well, that, that helped me draw all these muscular characters so well, because I was developing the same areas of my own body. What he's saying is, I was staring at myself in the mirror longingly <laughs> as, I, as I sketched my muscles on my characters. <laughs> That's right. Oh, you're looking good, Joe. Looking so good. Yeah. But Jusko is also the artist who painted the entire set of Marvel masterpieces trading cards which featured 105 original paintings of Marvel Universe characters. That's 100 in the main set and then 5 special cards. But yeah, so this is a big deal because obviously we knew the whole Marvel series 1, 2, and 3 were just selling out is what was being reported. But now they're saying Marvel Masterpieces is taking it to the next level because these are like photorealistic paintings. And these were huge for me. I 
I mean, they were such a big deal. The packaging was beautiful. They were black, and then they had either a picture of the Hulk, Spider-Man, or of Wolverine on the front of the packaging, and it would just catch your eye because, man, the detail that Joe Jusco put into these things. I actually have a whole set of the first three series of Marvel Masterpieces. I, I framed them and then put them up with, like, the wrapper images and an ad for them and everything up on my wall because that was just a seminal series that I absolutely had to collect. Uh, Michael, did you get into the Marvel Masterpieces cards? Uh, I did have some of them because anybody who knows me knows I love Alex Ross and I love the way painted characters look and I did collect some of those cards. I don't have them anymore that I can think of. I, I went through and checked recently all of my boxes of baseball cards and I found no comic book cards. I know that I had some, but yeah, I remember those foil packs vividly but this was like a revelation at the time when these came out because you just didn't see that many characters they actually released them also in a comic book format so you could just like flip through them and look at the large format pictures and this issue came packed with a promotional psylocke marvel masterpieces card it's a real dramatic pose she's got her two swords and she's looking pretty intense so it was psylocke marvel masterpieces and a savage dragon wizard trading card so that was kind of a big deal i know one of our listeners listeners out there shared an awesome picture of his still sealed in the poly bag issue and he's showing off that Psylocke card but on a side note in addition to the cards that are Marvel masterpieces it mentions that Marvel is also in keeping with the X-Force uh, special series of cards that subset for the Executioner song storyline this big X-Men crossover series that's coming out they are all going to be poly bagged with an exclusive trading card so that'll be another subset of 12 of your Marvel trading cards that you want to collect that are all the Executioner's song cards. One more thing to keep out of. And then finally, the Wizard of Cards section, which is written by Stephen Seamus, Garib's brother. Lately, he's been talking about sports cards a lot, because that seems to be like the only news, the only new thing that was coming out, which is why we haven't covered it in a while. But what he does mention is that he questions the morality of producing trading cards which have suddenly become very popular, and they are two different subjects. One is those featuring serial killers, like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and, and Al Capone, and like there's these killer criminal people, and you get like these bios on them and stuff. He's like, do we really need to highlight, you know, these types of figures from the past? This is really a thing? There was there was serial killer... Tr what? Yeah, I mean, you gotta think about it. I mean, this is a time when there were, you know, movies and things being made. You know, like, we talk about a lot of thrillers and things like that, but there was an actual full series of serial killers killer trading cards okay and apparently they were selling like they were popular but more popular even were the naked model trading cards and so he's mentioning there was a series that came out last year that was a big deal now they're producing another one and he's like you must be 18 years or older to purchase these sets however that's never stopped anyone before wow okay so apparently that was getting to be a big deal where you just like whatever subject at this point especially the those for adults were now being turned into trading cards, so... Mom never let me bring those home, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, seriously. But speaking of getting intense here, Michael, it's time we take a look at... The Punisher's Price Guide. The Wizard's Crystal Ball features the hyping up of Valiant's 
new Hard Corpse Number One, which features a double gated cover by Jim Lee as another smash hit, quote unquote. Uh, this is the only other Valiant team book besides Harbinger, and is supposed to be aimed at a younger audience who is buying X Men despite the fact that the team features middle-aged, bald men <laughs> in jumpsuits as the main characters. As we've seen, Valiant was the darling of more mature comics readers, and especially Wizard at the time. But did the Crystal Ball really see the future? As of May 2020, an ungraded copy of Hard Corpse Number 1 sells for a whopping, let me tell you, whopping one dollar and twenty five cents on average, which means that some are lower, <laughs> though a limited edition gold variant fluctuates wildly between eleven dollars and forty dollars. But the entire 30 issue run of the series can be had for around thirteen to thirty dollars in the entire lot. Wow. Jeez. That didn't go over well, huh? <laughs> so, the value of the book remains relatively low, most likely only gaining value from the Jim Lee artwork. But given that the cover price of the book in 1992 was $2.50, Hard Corpse number one is a burnout. Yeah. It's a cool name, it's a cool idea, but like, yeah, it's, I don't know if it's going to grab younger audiences with a bunch of bald guys well that's what i thought interesting last episode preston mentioned hardcore he said he was like yeah that was a book that i bought i checked it out i don't know how many issues deep he got into it but yeah it was an interesting concept because i think as i recall they were basically characters that could use temporarily the powers of the harbinger type characters so those superpowered beings in that universe but yeah it was just a very strange look though because yeah it was literally a bunch of dudes in jump suits so it's just kind of like there's no sexy girls there's nothing going on here you know to bring in the younger crowd it's a bunch of bros hanging out yeah bros yeah you know just chilling <laughs> oh but we know a couple of bros who like to get their hype on yes oh, it's time yeah. for robin todd's hype machine So, you'll be happy to know, with the release of Spawn, Todd is currently number one on the Wizards' top ten hottest artists, with Rob coming in at number three behind Jim Lee. So, Todd is currently giving away the latest issue of Spawn to the first 500 entrants of the Dallas and Houston Comic Convention, and Spawn is now number two on the top ten hottest books list behind Harbinger number one. So, I mean, Todd is really on the rise here. I mean, Rob got out of the gate first with Youngblood, but Spawn is the book that everybody's talking about now. In fact, speaking of Rob, it's it's reported here that he has turned Youngblood from a three-issue miniseries to a five-issue series, if you include issue number zero. And issue number four will now have the glow-in-the-dark cover that was originally promised to be part of issue number three. That I remember reading that, and I, was, and I pulled my, out my issue of number three, and I was like, there's no glow-in-the-dark cover here. Uh, but I'm missing number four, so that would be it. You're not missing much. 
but Rob is mentioning also he is getting ready to release his new book, Supreme, which, as you recall, is basically his take on Superman. He's like, well, how would I write Superman? And the anthology series, Darker Image. So Rob has more stuff in the pipeline, but quality over quantity, not his forte. But also in here, uh, a reader is really ticked off, claiming that Wizard ripped off the fans. Let me read this to you real quick. This is the last letter in this issue. So Mark Russo of Larchmont, New York. Dear Wizards, you people are fools. I don't appreciate your false advertising, parentheses, lies. In issue number nine of The Wizard, you said that there was going to be a bound-in poster of Cable and Shaft. Well, it wasn't there. Instead, you had the worst poster of, quote, Spidey. It was so bad, the color even went out of the lines. Where did you get this thing? Half of the reason I buy Wizard is for its great posters. The other half of this issue didn't make up for that thing you call a poster. I suggest an apology to your readers, or at least me. <laughs> So this is how Wizard responds. Someone got out of the wrong side of the bed this morning. Relax, Mark. Let me explain. The decision to switch the intended shaft cable to the 30th anniversary Spider-Man poster was a last-minute deal. Marvel supplied us with the poster, and we thought it was pretty cool. I, on behalf of Wizard, apologize if this upset you, and hope you enjoy the cover posters in Wizards number 11 through 13. <laughs> Well, and the fun thing about this is, as you'll recall from episode 10, they're really covering up the actual deal, which is that cover was an unauthorized crossover of a Marvel and Image character. And so Marvel actually called them up and said, you will not include a poster of that, and you will never reprint that picture again. So they're just saying, oh, we, we thought the Spidey poster was cool. Oh man, Rob stirred up controversy now for Wizard instead of just himself. But as we look at the totals, we see that Rob and Todd are actually tied up for this issue, both coming in with five mentions, which brings Rob's total throughout the entire run of 13 issues of Wizard of 81 mentions but Todd, oh, so close, 79, just two mentions away. We will see what happens in issue 14 and see if he can finally tie it up or maybe surpass Rob in mentions. But speaking of a Rob, who are we going to talk about next, Michael? We're going to dive into Robin's Reading Rainbow, folks. So, a new book that is flying under the radar this month in the picks from Wizard's Hat section is Batman Sword of Azrael number one, which states, Introducing Azrael, the enforcer of a semi-secret Order of St. Dumas, and from Europe, they've involved the Batman. That's a typo? That's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> They didn't have a good editor proofreading that sentence, I, I think. Most of our listeners know that Azriel would play a large part in the Nightfall saga in 1993, but at this time, it was just another Bat book on the shelves. Written by Batman veteran, writer and editor Denny O'Neill, with art by Joe Casada and editor Archie Goodwin, says after the unsuccessful trying to convince Casada to commit to art duties 
on a monthly Batman book, this limited series was the compromise. It went mostly unnoticed upon its release, but suddenly became a hot book as the Nightfall saga began to ramp up. Yeah, and there's a very important name that was mentioned there, Michael, because we'll mention that as we're recording this today, we got the news that Denny O'Neill had passed away. And so he's a legend of the industry, and Michael, I'm sure you have a lot to say about him. Yeah, so if you read comics in the 80s and 90s, you most likely picked up a Denny O'Neill book, whether it's Marvel or DC. He had his finger on a lot of different stuff. Best known for his work on Batman, which he was involved in writing Batman, Detective Comics, Legends of the Dark Knight from 1986 to around 2000. The goal that he was trying to bring forth was to bring Batman back to his his darker roots and get away from the campy 60s version of Batman. Some of his best Batman stories are, in no particular order, Batman, Birth of the Demon, Batman, There is No Hope in Crime Alley, Joker's Five-Way Revenge, the original Demon Saga in Batman numbers 232, 235, 240, and 242 through 244. And one that I had to throw in there because my friend and colleague is a big, big fan of this particular co-star in a Batman book. In Batman number 253, Batman meets the Shadow. Yes, and he actually wrote that in the 70s, there was a Shadow solo title. I have the first two issues of that and a couple of random ones, but he wrote the first eight issues of that series and did a great job. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. So Denny O'Neill was involved in creating a ton of very, very significant characters in the Batman mythos, as well as characters in the Spider-Man and Marvel mythos. So for DC, he either created or co-created Ra's al Ghul, Talia al Ghul, Leslie Tompkins, Azriel, and Richard Dragon. For Marvel, he created Madam Web, which I didn't know that. I was surprised by that. Hydro Man, who I hate as a character because <laughs> what he did in the animated series, not because of the comics, but just because of what he did in the animated series. Obadiah Stane, Lady Deathstrike, and here's a really, really interesting one that I found. He is the person that named Optimus Prime. Wow. Isn't that pretty cool? Yeah, that's awesome. So I have a couple more interesting facts. Did you know that he wrote the iconic Superman versus Muhammad Ali one-shot. He was also involved in reinvigorating Green Arrow and Green Lantern with Neil Adams, where they wrote the very, very popular book, Hard Traveling Heroes. And he's also the one that gave Roy Harper a drug addiction, which is kind of interesting. The last little things that I have here is he also revitalized the Joker and Two-Face to their darker, more sinister versions than what they were previous, which is kind of cool. But here's my favorite thing that I found. Did you know that he worked on The Question? And there is a story arc in The Question, because there's a miniseries or uh, like a 12-issue run, called A Dream of Rorschach. And in it, the question is reading Watchmen and compares himself to Warshak and... It's pretty meta. I, I kind of like read a few excerpts of it. So he's like, he's reading Watchmen and he's seeing that character in the book. And he's like, am, am I that guy? Like, is it me? And it's, it's <laughs> cool. It's from June of 1988. So if you could find that 
book. It's pretty cool. It's it's in this mini series of the question, and it's pretty interesting. Wow, that is awesome. That is super meta. Uh, for those of you who don't know, in the history of Watchmen, originally Alan Moore was wanting to use the Charlton Comics characters, so people like Captain Adam, who became Doctor Manhattan, or Blue Beetle, you know, all these characters. But DC had just acquired them and didn't want him to, I guess, involve them in such a heavy subject matter. So that is awesome that Denny O'Neill just found a way to work that in and pay homage to the origin of Rorschach. So I, I just thought all oh, that stuff was kind of cool. And, you know, he's he's super influential on my Batman experience because him and Neil Adams were the paramount of Batman in that time period. And I was looking back in my brain and I, I met him a couple of years ago at New York Comic Con. And I'm one of those people that I, maybe I'm weird, but I don't want to like ask them for their autograph if I don't have something of theirs to autograph. But I, I just like to go up to them and have a conversation and be like, hey, man, like you are a big influence on me. And I talked to him for maybe two minutes tops. Super genuine guy. Very, very nice. Very quiet and humble, which is cool to say hi. Like, listen, you know, growing up, your Batman was my Batman. It's sad that, you know, he passed away. And but my goodness, what a legacy. Like what? Look at the characters alone that he created is unbelievable. Uh, and just like the like whether he was a writer or an editor or whatever he was doing, he was always at the top of the heap. Like everybody's just like if Danny O'Neill's doing it, it is quality. Yeah. And I know especially in the Batman world, if you go to any behind the scenes Batman movie documentary special features, they're always interviewing Danny O'Neill cuz he was the authority yeah. on who is Batman as a character. And even if you go back and listen to our uh, i believe it was episode number four which had batman on the cover denny o'neill they have a whole interview with them where he's breaking down the psychology of batman i mean he's just getting into all the details there so that's who i always associated him with the shadow and batman and how he just really loved and dug into those characters but he does the same in this book here as uh we're talking about azrael in batman sort of azrael number one as was mentioned there i mean this was not a major release when it came out. If you look at the books that are being highlighted in picks from the Wizard's Hat, it's Shadowhawk number one, it's Cable number one, it's Ray number zero, Cyberforce number one, Youngblood number zero, one zero, one zero. I don't know, they got some binary language they're trying to program our minds. But Sword of Azrael is just listed in more picks. And there's, a, there's a little black and white photo of Azrael, but otherwise, this didn't have a big promotion behind it. Joe Casada is still an up-and-comer. Danny O'Neill is just the stalwart, you know, so if he's working on a bat book, you're like, all right, well, he's working on a bat book. That's what he does. But I'm curious for you, Michael, did you find out about Azrael as part of the Nightfall saga? Did you find out about him back during this time? Where, where did you discover the character? Totally through Nightfall, not, not through this at all. I didn't even know this book existed until we talked about it. I do remember the cover when I when I saw it, but I didn't remember. I did not have this book. I did not read this book. Wizard as a magazine seems to be very heavy on let's promote Marvel, let's promote Image, and and ignore Batman and I, or or ignore DC. That's why it kind of falls down. But the cool thing about this book issue, which is very interesting, is there's like a four or five page like forward of this like excerpt uh, i read a little bit of it that was kind of cool called the ground floor and it's an introduction by archie goodwin and it's just kind of a cool cool little read i'm not gonna waste our time talking about it but it was 
it was an interesting little thing to see before the actual book started. Did you read it at all? Yeah, I, I read all the way through it. And that's what I found so interesting because this is obviously part of like a reprint of this sort of Azrael story because he's talking about, oh, now that we know what's happening in Nightfall and what a big character Azrael is, like he mentions that towards the end, but he's very cryptic. He's not giving anything away as to how important he'll be. So you could obviously tell that this was, and he, he's the one who kind of mentions that it was under the radar at the time. And so, yeah, like that, that was a real interesting uh, way to set the story because I'm sure they re-released this as soon as Nightfall became everything that everybody was talking about and being interested in and i actually when i bought this on comiXology i bought the first issue and i was like and then I found that they had the full series for free if you have an unlimited account. And I was like, oh, but I was glad I did because the full series version doesn't have this intro. Really? So it, it, yeah. Cool. So I, I don't know why they, they separated that out of there. But but this book, you know, Joe Quesada, I've talked about how I got to meet him back in the day when he was doing the Ray at DC. And, it, you know, like, so he was this up and comer who, you know, started doing his work at Valiant Comics and then was doing a little bit of DC here and there. And so his art style in this book is so interesting because he deals heavily, heavily in silhouettes and shadows. Oh my goodness. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful shadowing. And like, you know how hard it is to color in black and just like make it look like something or give it a three-dimensional feel to it? It's it's mm -hmm. really a beautifully drawn book. And we read something earlier where like a writer paired with the right artist will make the book so much better because – how many books have I said that I've bought because the cover looked cool and I like the writer, but then I go to see the art, the art inside and it's just awful. And I'm like, why did I just waste four bucks in this book? Mm -hmm. This was I was glad that I spent two bucks on this to read it because it's really beautiful and I really liked the way the story plays out. It was not what I expected at all, which I was very, very glad about as well. Yeah, like the truth is Batman spends most of his time as Bruce Wayne in this book. Yeah. There are very few panels of him in the actual cape and cowl. The cover is very deceiving. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting is that Joe Quesada draws his Bruce Wayne very much like a younger version of Frank Miller's Bruce Wayne. Very thick, very wide. Like, he is just like a huge dude. He's got a big jaw, you know? So I was just like, oh, okay. So this is like, it almost feels like it's part of that universe. He's very, seems very influenced by that Frank Miller build of Batman. But also, his panel construction is very... Very, very experimental. Like, he'll do, like, you know, some standard panel pages. But there is a particular section here because Azrael is part of this Order of St. Dumas, and they are this secret society, and they have this avenging angel who is this trained warrior that they send out, that they brainwash through the system. It's basically, like, throughout their entire lives, from the time they're children, they're brainwashed. And there is this panel where Jean-Paul Valley, who is now tasked with taking over from his father who he didn't know was Azrael. He's talking about how he doesn't understand why they want him to do this. He's not violent, all these things. And they have him stare at this medallion. And you see this cool reflection in one of the sides of his glasses lens. And then it goes to this page which is just starting out with his face and then it just gets more and more warped and there's all these flames and then he becomes like this demon Azrael face and it's just, it is intense. I mean, it is an amazing amazing page so here's the other funny thing about this i didn't see that when i read through it i'm gonna read it on my phone 
they don't call him Jean-Paul Valley in this at all. He doesn't have a name, this kid, yet. That I noticed. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think that comes in until a little bit later because I started reading ahead, like the rest of the issues, you know. And so there's more of a discovery of who he is. But yeah, you're right. He is just kind of this kid who gets approached and pulled into this story. Now, here's the interesting thing for me. As I was reading it, I was like, I know I've never picked up this book before. I've never seen this book before. But the dialogue was in my head. And I was like, have I been programmed by the Order of St. Dumas? How do I know these words? And it's because I had the Nightfall Saga on audio cassette as an audio drama mm-hmm. where it was being performed and this issue is the beginning of the nightfall saga and you're getting the backstory of who Azrael is even though he wouldn't you know get super involved in everything till a little bit later so as i was reading this I'm like wow i've heard this dialogue a bunch of times before this is the sigil the seal of our order the emblem your father and his ancestors bore upon their weapons as avenging angels Seeking out and destroying those who betrayed the trust of their fellow members. Gaze into the sigil. Unlock the hidden training your father gave you. Know what you already know. I am Jean-Paul Valley, heir to the sword of Azrael. I bend my will to avenge those members of the Order of St. Dumas betrayed by their fellows. My life is as nothing. I serve in the robe of the Avenging Angel. I am Azrael. I am Azrael. Ah! The horror! And now I'm seeing where it came from. So that was just kind of a trippy experience for me. You know what's funny about this? When when you see young John Paul Valley as as a kid, he's got this long hair. He's not what you would see him in the comics later on, where he's got the shorter, cleaner cut when he's actually as Batman at some point. But he kind of, with the glasses, reminds me of Jim Gordon's son, and he looks crazy like him at points. It's almost like they, that they copied that character when they recreated Jim Gordon's son in the future later on things like in New 52. I really liked the story. I thought it went very cool. And it's very deceiving because Batman does not meet Azrael, I think, at all in the issue. I think maybe the last page you might see him for a second, but they don't fight. There's nothing about that. It's more like Batman's trying to figure out what this is. What's going on? Yeah, there's just like an arms dealer who is selling weapons, but he is a guy who betrayed the Order of St. Dumas, and so that's why they're about to cross paths, because Batman is following one lead, and then Azrael now has his mission that he's being activated for. And then, yeah, the end of the issue is Batman in a helicopter being blown up by a bazooka. And it's actually Bruce Wayne with Alfred in the helicopter. They're together. Yeah. It's not even him as batman mm-hmm. and they, they even have a, a small like couple panels where you see barbara gordon as oracle and they kind of like reveal that she is yeah they you know she's got like uh, you know the, the information guru or whatever it is and and she's the one doing the research to find the answers of what this particular medallion is on the bottom of Azrael's sword and they don't establish why the sword lights on fire yet <laughs> but the effect what they do wait the way it's drawn looks so cool like it really does look cool and the other thing that i found very interesting about this issue artistically is jean paul valley's 
dad, who plays the previous Azriel, his suit is totally different, other than the like the scalloped, you know, shoulder wings that stick out that are very, you know, pronounced in the Azriel character. And the the costume is so different. It's more like Knights of the Round Table with like a face mask like that. It was cool. Yeah, and, and they say that they asked Joe Casada to come up with the concept, and they just told him it's going to be a high tech knight. So however you want to take that, make it happen. And so the actual Azrael costume that is the updated version that Jean-Paul Valley wears, yeah, is a very different design, but very cool. The other thing I was going to mention about this is as I'm looking at the art style here, Joe Casada goes back to Valiant and he creates, well, he doesn't create, but he launches Ninjack. And Ninjak is similar to Azrael from the perspective of he's kind of like this international spy assassin character. He works for this organization. But just the way, you know, Joe Quesada is drawing Azrael here becomes very similar to how he does Ninjak later on. So uh, I think people that maybe didn't see this at the time, then saw Ninjak, they were like, oh, Ninjak is great. But had they known, had there been a bigger splash made for Azrael, this character might have flown a little bit earlier you know to uh, to, into everybody's consciousness but it's it's a cool book guys if you want to pick up you know on comiXology and read it it's definitely interesting the art is awesome it really is beautiful Uh, i i I recommend this book and i've there's been a lot that we've read that i wouldn't recommend this one i would recommend so as we close out here you know when michael and i get together we like to get to know each other just a little bit better so it's time for a segment called what the do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once i am one of those melodramatic fools to the bone, no doubt All right, so, so Michael, you recently had a birthday as of this recording. Was it a fun day? Did you get anything cool? Did I get anything cool? If you would classify Amazon gift cards as cool, yes. <laughs> um, so my wife got me like this really cute stuff for the baby that are Batman related and whatnot. No Batman boxer shorts or anything? No Batman boxer shorts. My, my daughter did before the shutdown. She had gone to costco with with my wife and she saw batman pajama pants and she picked them out and said mommy you gotta get these for daddy and then she came home and she came to me she goes daddy i bought you batman pajamas i'm like with whose money (laughs) um, (laughs) that being the case then do you have a, a favorite birthday memory of years past? Because I know I sent you a few pictures on social media of old, awesome Batman party supplies and things like that. Did you ever have a Batman-themed birthday? Probably when I was in elementary school, yes. So, like, the funny thing is, like, for me, being a June birthday in, in New York, the weather is unpredictable. Sometimes it's brutally hot like it was today, and other times it's pretty cold. So I usually like to default to either like movie theater birthday parties or bowling alley birthday parties. But my favorite probably was, I think it was around this time. One year, we, Jurassic Park opened up on my birthday. And so I said, we got to go to Jurassic Park. Like, this is gonna be the biggest movie in the world. And I, I got to bring my friends to go this. I, this has got to be my birthday party. It was going to be like, you took everybody to see Jurassic Park for your birthday? And it was cool. So we had like 13 kids and we had like two rows of seats because all the moms came, whatever. That was a lot of fun. We went over to like, do you know what the ground round is? 
I think I've heard of it. Yeah, I don't know if we have them out on my side of the world, but I think I've heard of the name. Ground Ran is like a sizzler or places like that, but it had like a big, always did like a big party room and, you know, it was just kind of a fun place you'd go for lunch and then you'd go to the movie theater right after. And so it was kind of a cool thing. And then uh, other than that, then it would be like, you know, obviously my 21st birthday was a lot of fun growing up, but that's a, for a totally different reason. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what, what about you? What Do you have any favorite birthday memories? My mom was very cool about creating a themed party. So I, I had lots of different themes. Like I had a real Ghostbusters party. That was one of my favorites. And, you know, because I, I got Ghostbusters merchandise, but we had like all the banners and the tablecloth and characters on the cake and all that stuff. So that was a huge one for me. But I remember in uh, junior high, so about 94, 95, I remember having a birthday party with my buddies. We had our own secret club and we were called the Coollanders. And so it was just like me and these four other guys. And we would hang out and we would go to the comic book stores together. And that was kind of our bond. We were all into comics. We all collected action figures. We all were kind of into that same thing. And there were very few of us in our school. And so I remember for my birthday party, I posted some pictures of, of this a while back on social media. But like, it was just so much fun to literally like bring out my action figures. I decorated the party myself. So at the table, I put the streamers up. I was hanging Spider-Man figures from the ceiling. I had a Spider-Man 2009 Sandy. I put that in the center of the table i was just like yeah this is what it's all about guys and then they got me like you know the big 10 inch action figures of war machine and apocalypse and it was having a birthday party with friends i knew you know it wasn't just like random kids from school like it was in elementary you know you're just like hey everybody come over to my birthday party it was just like guys who knew what it was all about and so that was just a super fun party just to have my friends there and say you know what yeah we are we are nerds but we are proud Happy birthday. That's pretty cool. It's a good story, man. Good story. I approve that message. <laughs> <laughs> but all right. So that is Wizards episode 13. We hope you guys had some fun. And looks like, Michael, we made it through. Not too much of that mold in our lungs at this point. <laughs> so I think we'll just go out, take a fresh breath, and be good to go. But uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Keep an eye on social media, of course, uh, at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. Be sure to check out our tea public store if you want to get some merch yeah it doesn't just have to be t-shirts with the wizards logo get yourself a mug get yourself some stickers we have mugs now what whatever you want baby i need i need a mug now my goodness all right i got a great i yeah. gotta order myself a mug <laughs> <laughs> and we are going to be back with issue 14 keep an eye out for that as we talk yeah the x gals on the cover and michael has invited a special guest for that episode as well it's going to be a great conversation and of course michael will be back doing his solo mission for the wizards half episode for this so keep an eye out for that as well in the feed uh there's always so much to talk about so we can't wait to get your feedback and share more with you keep listening to the retro network lots of great shows here thanks again to jason and mickey for giving wizards a home and until next time keep your books back in board This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.